thank you for having me this evening. And uh, I apologize that it's online and not in person. I would, of course, much prefer to, uh, to be with you all in person. I don't like just talking to my computer screen. So hopefully um, we'll have some time after for some discussion. Um, so I understand that this uh, Advent season, you've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and um, we've come to chapter 7. Um, when I look at chapter 7 uh, and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, of course, there are many, many topics that are addressed in this one chapter. So uh, if it's okay with you all, I, I will plan to focus on the beginning of chapter 7, which deals with the, uh, the problem of judgment. So I'm going to read first from um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, uh, and then a parallel passage in Luke. Um, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let it, me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I'm um, also going to take a passage from Luke chapter 6, verses 35 through 38. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Um, so I want to begin with one of my favorite stories from the Desert Fathers. Uh, it's... Um, told in the um, in the story that this um, specific monk died very joyfully because he had never throughout his life condemned anyone. Um, however, he was known to be a lazy, careless monk, and he was disinclined even to prayer. But throughout his entire life, he had never judged anyone. And when he lay there dying, he was full of joy. The brethren who were gathered around him and how he could die so joyfully with all of his sins. And he replied, quote, I have seen the angels, and they showed me a page with all my sins. I said to them, the Lord said, judge not that you not be judged. I have never judged anyone, and I hope in the mercy of God that he will not judge me. And the angels tore up the sheet of paper. Hearing this, the monks wondered at it and learned from it. Um, a very simple but very powerful story about sort of um, this key that the Lord gives us. Uh, maybe it's one of those few keys that could be called uh, sort of a free ticket to heaven that um, if we are able to be pure in heart to the extent that we never judge anyone, that we are ourselves free of judgment on the day of judgment, even with our many sins. Um, so this question of judging others, condemning others is one of the main cornerstones of our Christian faith. Um, it's one of those things like j loving our enemies that um, 
is given to us as a sort of supernatural feat, something that is humanly impossible apart from living the life of grace and the lifelong ascetic struggle. Um, and it's precisely because it is this beautiful cooperation between the grace of God and our own struggle that um, that the the work of judgment and freeing ourselves from the sin of judgment um, can have such a powerful impact on purifying the soul. Um, of course, we have to begin with the question of what is judgment? What do we mean by judging others? Um, sometimes we confuse judgment with discernment. And um, sometimes we question how can we not judge when we're put in positions as people of authority, whether we're parents or clergy or uh, in any position at work in which I have to judge the actions of other people. Um, so we want to understand sort of what is meant by the sin of judgment. Um, I think in a very simple way, we can say that judgment is always a kind of comparison. There's always some sort of assessment that takes place when we judge somebody. We either see that somebody is kind enough or they're not kind enough. Somebody is good enough or they're not good enough. Somebody is educated enough or not educated enough and so forth and so on. So there's always some sort of scale that we use in comparing somebody. Um, the problem is, is that um, we have all been sort of taught this from our infancy. We're taught to compare ourselves to others. We do it with our children. It was done to us. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people in terms of how they're behaving, in terms of the grades that they get on, on their homework and their tests, um, how neat other kids are, how respectful other kids are. And, you know, our parents are constantly using that as a means of compar comparing ourselves to other people. We then, of course, grow up doing that and teaching our own children how to do that. Um, so the, this idea of judgment really sort of begins by very simply having a mindset of constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Um, and um, there's this evaluation that takes place. We begin to um, be critical of others when we evaluate them about things like power, money, clothing, and material possessions, where they live, how they live. We're constantly comparing, making judgments about other people, um, again, on some sort of a scale. Um, now, from a psychological standpoint, then we could almost say that the scriptural command to not judge others could begin from a point of view of saying, do not compare. Do not compare and do not evaluate yourself against other people. Um, now, what are some of the uh, the problems that we encounter when we when we judge other people? The first one I would say is that it's uh, very closely intrinsically linked to the chief sin of the passions, which is self love. Self love is sort of um, we're told by the fathers, by the ascetic fathers, especially, um, is sort of the source of all of the other sins. Um, and judgment is sort of the perfect sin that feeds my self-love. And there's a there's a there's a, a positive aspect to judging others because as soon as I judge somebody else, I feel better about myself. Uh, anytime I compare myself to others and I make a judgment about them as being 
somehow less or worse or more evil or more sinful, um, then of course I come out on top as being better, good, more righteous, and so on. So judgment is a very positive uh, way to feed my self-love. Um, and I sort of strengthen my own position and my own image of myself uh, by looking down upon somebody else. Um, with that comes a sort of freedom to not have to act in fraternity and charity towards my neighbor. Um, so in other words, if I can judge somebody, if I can lower them, um, if I can uh, ascribe something to them that is um, worthy of condemnation, then I don't have to act towards them with charity, right? So an example would be, I see a poor person on the street, I judge them to be a, an alcoholic or a drug addict or a bum who doesn't want to get a job, and therefore I can pass by him and feel good that I don't have to help him, right? So there's that aspect of judgment and self-love that frees me from any obligation of actually showing charity to my neighbor. So there are, in a sense, there's a whole sort of um, inventory of benefits that we find in judging others. Uh, and this is certainly, certainly one of them. Um, now, there are, according to some of the ascetic fathers, degrees of judging. I'll, I'll be quoting... Um, from St. Dorotheos of Gaza, great uh, uh, desert uh, ascetic uh, from Palestine, who um, speaks very, I think, completely and, and eloquently on, on this topic. He, he speaks of this sort of threefold uh, progression of judgment uh, from slander to judgment to disparagement. And uh, so we'll look at what he says and sort of define some of these terms more clearly he says, it is one thing to slander, another to judge, and another to disparage. To slander means to say of someone, this person has lied, or has lost his temper, or has fallen into fornication, or did something of this sort. But to judge or condemn means to say, this person is a liar, a raving maniac, a fornicator. For thus one judges the very disposition of his soul, giving sentence upon his entire life. Disparagement means not only to judge another, but to despise him. That is to look down upon him and to be disgusted with him as with some sort of filth. This is already judging and much more destructive. So according to Dorotheos of Gaza, he sees that slander is saying that somebody did something. Um, judgment, condemnation, somebody is something. And then that leads to this disparagement or this righteous hatred for or self-righteous hatred for um, the other person. Um, and so we can see sort of how they are all related and, and, and how one leads to the other. Um, there's also uh, an important link between judgment and self-knowledge. And we know that, again, in the spiritual life, that one of the most important um, measures of growth in the spiritual life is growing in our own self-knowledge of our, of our own sinfulness, our own misery, our own nothingness before God and being able, therefore, to repent more properly, more completely, and to be able to even, uh, you know, shed tears of, of repentance. So uh, the problem of judgment, of course, is that it, it thwarts that ability to grow in self-knowledge. It, it sort of hides behind, um, again, that self-love, and then disallows the possibility for 
self-knowledge to to grow and flourish. Um, Saint Isaac the Syrian has uh, a very beautiful, powerful quote that I'm sure many of you have heard before. He says, "He who sees himself as he is and has seen his sin is greater than the one who raises the dead." Right. So, very dramatic sort of point that Saint Isaac the Syrian makes, but it's repeated elsewhere in John Climacus and and many of the other ascetic fathers. Um, about the importance of self-knowledge over any sort of charismatic gift that we might have, um, even the power to raise the dead. Again, Dorfeo says, nothing makes man more naked or carries him so effectively to his ruin as slander, condemnation, and disregard of his neighbor. Um, once uh, an elder was asked, um, what is the most difficult thing for you? And he replied, to know oneself. And then what is the most easiest thing for you? And he said, to see the shortcomings of our neighbors. Right? So the most difficult thing is to know myself properly. The most easiest thing is to see what's wrong with, with the other person. Um, so we see sort of the, the struggle that we have, obviously, with, with judgment. And uh, as a priest, and I'm sure Father Michael can um, confirm his own experience, that you know it's, it's rare that any one of us myself, first and foremost included, doesn't go to confession and confess the sin of judgment. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly one that is a, a universal struggle for all of us. Again, St. Dorotheus um, says, those who desire to be saved do not pay attention to the faults of their neighbor, but always to their own, and thus progress. Such was the man who saw his brother sinning and groaned, saying, Alas, he sinned today for sure, it will be me tomorrow. Um, so we can't make progress as long as our eyes are on other people and we can only make progress if we are, uh, only focused on our own sinfulness, our own weaknesses and repenting, um, with those before the Lord with bitter tears, um, and seeking the grace that comes from a genuine repentance. Um, Elder Paisius, the contemporary uh, Greek saint, uh, whom I think many of you also know very well, once was visited by uh, by two pious uh, uh, visitors, and it was the beginning of Lent. And he saw they, these two visitors saw Elder Paisius bo boiling milk, and it was Lent. So one of them, at some point, couldn't stand it anymore, and you know, sort of uh, yelled to the elder. Elder Paisius, we are in the first days of Lent. We have a strict fast and you are boiling milk to drink. The elder, of course, was silent and didn't respond. Then he went to his cell and brought six small old porcelain cups, arranged them in a row and carefully filled them. He waited a while for them to cool while they were all looking, the visitors were looking with amazement. What is this crazy monk doing? The two pious people saw all of this with disgust because they were thinking in their hearts that he was actually preparing milk for six other visitors um, and that he would somehow dare to offer milk to these visitors uh, during Lent. Elder Paisius took the filled cups um, and then left them on the ground at the edge of a bush and then began to make a whistling sound towards the bushes. A few minutes later, a viper uh, snake passed uh, came out of the bushes with her five baby snakes. Um, the snake came close and began 
slithering near the visitors until they reached the cups and began to drink their morning milk. Apparently, the saint had been feeding them every day. So this is a, a, a very beautiful story, of course, about the, the holiness of one of the saints um, who was friends with the, again, the wild animals, as we see in so many stories of the saints. But also, it's a, a very simple story that reminds us about how easy it is that we we make judgments of things that we see without understanding what's really happening um, in reality. So this is part of the problem of self-righteousness is that it sort of blinds us to be able to see any possibility of something other than what we want to see. Um, St. John Climacus says, Oh, friends, look into your own souls, for if anyone could see his own vices accurately without the veil of self-love, he would worry about no one else in his life. Um, John Climacus actually says, this is very frightening when we think about it, that the judgment is worse than sin. He says, the demons, murderers as they are, push us into sin. Or if they fail to do this, they get us to pass judgment on those who are sinning, so that they may defile us with the stain which we ourselves are condemning in another. Truly, it is sometimes better to sin than to judge the sinner, for sin humbles the soul while criticism makes one like unto the devil. Right? So, um, again, a very frightening thought to think that, uh, you know, the sin of judgment is worse than the, the sin itself that we are judging, uh, because the sinner who has the possibility of uh, being humbled and repentant while the um, the criticism and the slander and the, the condemnation just makes our hard, hearts hard, hardened and uh, over time and make us more like the devil. And this leads us to another important point about judgment, which is that it, um, it prevents us from being compassionate and being able to show that compassionate and merciful love to others. Um, often times, if not all the time, when we judge, we simply don't know the whole story about the other person. We don't know anything about what they're struggling with at the moment. We don't know anything about their circumstances, their upbringing, their, their, um, you know, their circumstances within their families, whether they suffered trauma or abuse, or they were deprived of something as a child, or you know, so many factors that go into the present moment of who we are and what we're struggling with. And God is able to, of course, uh, weigh all of these things in a, in a perfect justice, whereas, of course, we have no possibility to do that. Again, St. Dorothea says that only God who knows the situation of each one of us, our strength, our environment, our individual gifts, our temperament and capacities can justify or condemn. He can judge each of these things as he only knows. There's a story of St. Beshoy in his biography um, in which, and I don't have the story in front of me, but just recalling it from memory, um, St. Beshoy was able to fast for, I think it was 21, 22 days, and he sees this young monk, new, a new monk who was you know, trying to fast for just a couple of days and was you know, on the point of death, it seemed. And, uh, and St. Beshoy was sort of wondering what is this? How is it that he's able to fast all these days? And this other monk is just so weak after two days. And um, the Lord revealed to St. Bishoy, I don't remember if it was directly or through an angel, 
that um, that Saint Bishoy was able to fast all of those days because God had given him the grace to do so, and God had given the grace to this other monk to only be able to fast these two days, and yet if God had given this other monk the grace that Saint Bishoy had received, he would be able to even fast more than Saint Bishoy. So this was a very sort of humbling uh, encounter that Saint Bishoy had, that where he understood that, you know, even to be able to do the things that lead to outward virtue and, um, you know, to to even do um, our duties in prayer and fasting and um, our spiritual obligations, that this is all dependent on grace and God in his wisdom measures out his grace depending on many, many factors that are according to his mysterious will. Uh, and therefore we have nothing to boast of even if we're able to do something that somebody else isn't able to do. And that includes avoiding sin. Um, and I think this is one of the, the great mysteries of the, the tears of the saints. People often ask, how is it that the saints, like let's say one like St. Pope Carolus VI, how can, they, um, how can they weep tears of repentance when in actual fact they are not committing any grave sin? I mean, certainly... Uh, Pope Carlos is not murdering anybody or uh, robbing a bank or uh, committing adultery. And yet he stands before God as one who is more repentant and more conscious of his sinfulness than, than those of us who are, you know, less than a percent of that sanctity. And I think the only answer is, is that um, sort of like with this story of St. Bishoy is that they are so conscious of their own nothingness they are so conscious of the great distance between them as a creature and God as creator and, um, and the, the bestower of, of all goodness and all grace, uh, that they understand that, the, that evil is within them to commit every possible sin. That apart from God's covering them with his grace and, and giving them that uh, ability to withstand temptation or to fight against temptation and to not commit these grave sins that were the Lord to withdraw his grace, that they would, they were, they would see within themselves that possibility, that capability of committing every possible sin. And so they associate themselves with that, um, that fallen condition. And, and so they weep from, from that understanding of their own nothingness. And, um, and that's why St. Isaac the Syrian speaks about bitter tears, but also sweet tears, because the bitter tears of repentance lead us to the sweet tears of God's um, consolation, God's mercy and compassion that um, accompanies us in proportion to how much we're willing to repent and face the shame of our own nothingness. Okay, so back to, um, uh, we read from St. Dorotheos. So again, we can possibly judge because we simply don't know all of the circumstances and all of what goes into a person's being at that moment uh, and uh, and therefore we uh, we usurp um, the prerogative of God to to be the only one who can judge properly we usurp that prerogative and and we make it our own and we become thieves and 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 we're we don't have even the ability to be stewards of something like that because we just simply don't have the, um, the, the knowledge, the wisdom, the ability 
to see the complete picture of what's uh, in a person's uh, uh, soul and, and their experience and their upbringing and all of those things that we talked about. Elder Paisu says, the judgments of God are an inscr inscrutable abyss. We should never condemn anyone, for by doing so, we usurp judgment from the hands of God. We are attempting to become gods. If Christ asks us on the day of judgment, we can give our opinion then, he says almost humorously. If Christ asks us on the day of judgment what our opinion is of somebody else, we can tell it to him then. Another story with Elder Paisius about one of the monastic sisters that was his spiritual daughters. Um, she says to him, sometimes, Elder, I get upset with one of the sisters I work with and I judge her, which, of course, is um, very typical of any sort of com community life, whether it's in a nunnery, a convent, uh, a monastery, a church, a family, a home. Uh, anytime there's community, there's going to be strife, there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be the possibility of judging one another. So she tells him that she um, she's upset with one of the other sisters that she works with and judges her. He answered her saying, do you have any idea how many demons that sister might be struggling against that on that particular time? For instance, you may say to her, sister, don't put this item here. Its place is over there. The next day, the evil one will make her forget what you said, and she will put the same item in the wrong place again. She may even make another mistake, and you will think to yourself, hmm, just yesterday I told her to be careful, and today she put the item in the wrong place again, and she made new mistakes as well. And so you condemn her and can't contain yourself from speaking out. The devil has done his work. He not only led you to condemn her, but also to estrange yourself from her. That is to break that bond of, of love. And she, not being aware that you were the cause of her carelessness, will feel guilty for scandalizing you and slip into sorrow. Do you see how cunningly the little devil works his evil and how we easily cave in? This is the reason why we mustn't judge anyone. We should only judge the devils who were once angels and ended up being demons. So the other problem um, with the um, sort of string of judgments that we make, which usually when we judge somebody, we continue to judge them. And, and as St. Dorotheo says, sort of there's this progression is that we sort of make a definitive, um, not only judgment, but, but we sort of put them into a sort of definitive box, if you will. Um, we don't really think that this person is capable of, of changing. Um, and uh, so we lose even that, that sense in which we, uh, we can, um, in, in sort of awe and wonder, uh, expect the grace of God to work in somebody's life, but we sort of fix them into their, um, this picture that we've judged them in. Um, the fathers do tell us that there are times, of course, given, um, our role and whatever it is, uh, again, uh, as let's say spiritual father, as priest, as, as a father, mother in the home, as an older brother, or sister, as a, you know, uh, a manager at work, how to correct others. Um, and the, the key I think is of course with discernment, of course, but, but with the virtue of gentleness, right? There has to be always a gentleness about us, uh, even when we're correcting somebody that we're obligated to correct, right? And so one of the saints gave the example of a fisherman um, who 
has to sort of allow that tension on, on the, on the line um, so that uh, the fish can run, can pull that, that line uh, and not break the line if there's too much tension, right? So there's the image of, of, of that gentleness. Um, and of course, another test of our sincerity of really wanting to correct somebody for the right reasons, the right motives is how much we pray for them. Um, again, St. John Climacus says, if you truly love your neighbor, as you say, then pray secretly and do not mock the man, for this is the kind of love that is acceptable to the Lord. There's an interesting um, connection, I think, between judgment and gratitude, in that um, judgment inevitably leads us to sort of grumble against God um, and prevents the heart from being full of gratitude. Uh, another elder, Elder Eumenius, uh, who uh, was a Greek elder who died in 1999, was very sensitive to, um, to, to judging and condemning others. Um, and uh, there's a story in his life that says that, you know, um, they said about him that even if his cell uh, caught fire, uh, he would, you know, of course, try to put the fire out of it in his cell. But if you went to him and later said, a cursed fire, elder, you nearly, you nearly caught on fire, he would answer and say, what's wrong with you? The fire was very beautiful. Uh, so he would even, you know, uh, have, a, a, he, he would be unable even to judge something like a fire that would consume his, his monastic cell. But he would see in that something that, uh, with the purity of his soul would be something even beautiful and to be grateful for. If you, they said, if you told the elder, the heat is terrible, it's unbearable, he would answer right away and say, the heat is wonderful. Um, and so it was clear that, that he didn't even have the capacity to, to judge or condemn even the elements or physical um, uh, things that, uh, uh, apart from, from other humans. So the, in the spiritual struggle, of course, our, our judgments begin with our thoughts. And so we have to be, as the, um, as the great spiritual tradition of our church constantly teaches us, we have to be attentive, right? As we say in the Divine Liturgy, let us attend. We have to be vigilant. As the Lord says in the Gospels, watch, watchfulness. These are all um, central aspects of not only the monastic life but but of all the the spiritual instruction that comes from the gospels and from the spiritual tradition of our church and the lives of the saints the attentiveness that we um, give to our thoughts uh, there's a there's a very sort of strong powerful story it's, it's sort of i almost hesitated to share the story because it's um <laughs> it's, it leads certainly could lead us to despair but I will share my thoughts after the story about uh, how we might interpret this um, in a way that doesn't lead us to despair. So the story, it's about Tama Virini. Of course, uh, many of you know her life and her story. Uh, she reposed in 2006. She says this herself. She says, one day I was in church. I was surprised to hear some nuns talking about their manual work throughout the liturgy. On the way to my cell, I also beheld a certain incident between two nuns. 
Deep inside me, I wondered about their conduct. That is, she sort of had a, a thought of judgment. But I did not utter a word that would judge them outwardly. Um, I did not imagine that my surprise could be a form of judgment, that just even her sort of surprise at their behavior um, was in and of itself uh, an implicit judgment. Anyways, she says that she forgot about the incidents that evening while she was in prayer and thinking in, about herself, examining herself and her own sins and seeking guidance for her, the purity of her soul. She said, unexpectedly, I found myself in front of a large building with an iron gate. A man was standing by the door. He opened it and let me in. The place was morbid, depressing, smelly, and extremely dark. It had stony walls and rooms that looked like trenches. I saw some nuns standing each in a trench. They were crying. So I asked them, why are you here in this dreadful place? They answered, because we were judging our mother superior and our sisters. Then they asked me, and what brought you here? I said, today I fell into the sin of judgment. I tried to leave the place quickly, looking for a way out. Then I found a ladder that led to the door from which I had entered. At the door, I saw a man dressed in white. He said, I am the keeper of this place. You have seen how difficult it is. I told him, but I want to get out of here because I cannot take it anymore. He said, all the people who are here used to judge others, and they are not going to get out. But you had permission to get in to see what happens here, and then to leave. So be careful. I said, I will be. I regret what I did, and I will never judge anyone again. I want to get out of here. He let me out, showed me a narrow way. It was so narrow that I was unable to walk through it except by walking sideways and realized that my face and my back were, were being scratched up by the stone walls. He also showed me a very wide way full of cars, people, and glittering lights. And he said to me, at the end of this narrow way, you will find your convent. But in the wide one, you will lose your way. I said, no, I will take the narrow way. I walked with my back, rubbing against the wall until I reached the large gate, which leads to the convent. I entered my cell, knelt down, and said, I have sinned. Forgive me, Lord. Thank you for not leaving me in that awful place. Please give me repentance and help me not to judge or criticize anyone. I then regained consciousness and found myself kneeling in my prayer corner. The floor below me was wet with my tears. I could still smell that disgusting place. I spent the night in prayer, in tears, and in humble repentance. The following day, I felt a terrible pain in my back and shoulder whenever I tried to bend down. When Mother Martha saw my back, she told me that it was scratched and my clothes were covered in blood. For three days, I had a temperature of up to 104 degrees due to these scars. My, my, my father in confession said to me, you should thank God who taught you this lesson in the beginnings so was not to judge or involve yourself in matters that don't pertain to you. Here again is sort of a, an allusion to the danger even of curiosity. She said, I followed his advice and took care to put cotton in my ears so as not to hear any conversation taking place between the mother superior and any nun. I minded my own business. I would go straight from my cell to wherever I was supposed to work. Thus, I would escape the sin of judgment and act according to the psalm, quote, but I am like a man who cannot hear, like one who cannot open his mouth. I am like the one who hears nothing and has no answer to offer. Psalm 38. Um, so my thoughts on this story, uh, very frightening, very um, humbling. Uh, but if you 
are like me saying, well, then who can possibly escape that kind of um, punishment, that kind of um, uh, ultimate um, outcome from simply thinking thoughts uh, of judging others once? Um, how do, what do we make of a story like this? This is just my own opinion. I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear what some of your thoughts are on it. But my own thought is that perhaps um, when the saints are reaching very high levels of, of sanctity and the Lord himself is sort of like um, leading these souls into um, higher levels of holiness and giving them the grace to, to be saints, witnesses in the church. And um, uh, he has a special purpose for them that uh, he sort of allows them to, how do we say, like be more, um, more narrowly scrutinized for even the smallest weaknesses. It, he refines them in such a way that um, he doesn't allow even a, a light blemish to remain on them. Um, and that it's not something that this story should be taken in a universal sense, but it was something that she needed to experience in this way because she had already reached very high levels of spirituality and the Lord was taking her to, again, a more refined understanding of sin. Um, at least maybe that's how I comfort myself in um, hearing the story. But again, I'd be interested to hear what, what you think about it. Um, but it does tell us that um, our Lord in the Gospels was very clear about the importance of our thoughts. We know that, for example, in the case of Matthew chapter 22, when the Lord casts out a demon and the, the, those who are his accusers uh, say that he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, um, it says that in Matthew 22, uh, 25, it says Jesus knew their thoughts. So just they were thinking this. They hadn't said it. Um, also, in Matthew chapter 9, about the healing of the paralytic, again, some of the scribes said within themselves when he said, you know, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, that They said in their own thoughts, this man blasphemes. And the gospel says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Right. So, Clearly, the Lord, and, and there are, of course, many, many examples in the Gospels, especially of our Lord uh, scrutinizing the thoughts of others that hadn't spoken um, words, but just had carried these thoughts in their hearts and in their minds. Um, saint Nikolai uh, Velimirovich, a Serbian saint, um, said, When the Lord found it right to reprimand the Pharisees and scribes, they had not at that time killed or deceived or robbed anyone. Not only that, at that time they had offended no one even by words. Why then did he upbraid them when they had committed no offense either in deed or word? Because their thoughts were evil, and evil thoughts are sin. This is another of those great tidings that Christ brings to the world. It is precisely evil thoughts that are the origin of all sin. For before a man speaks or acts sinfully, he thinks sinfully. Thought is the causative sin. Other sins are only resultant sins. He who wishes to exterminate the latter must uproot the former. 
He who wishes to stop a flow of water must first drain the source. A snake is not poisonous only when it bites, but also when it does not bite. It carries the poison in itself. So not only is the thought evil, it is the source of sin, the beginning of sin, the seed and root of sin. So really the Christian life is a battlefield, but the battlefield is not something external so much as it is inside of ourselves, within our thoughts, within the movements of our heart. Um, and we know even that our thoughts and the condition of our, our, our heart can radiate even outside of ourselves to others. And uh, we sense it when we're around people who are genuinely pure of heart, that there's a certain peace that flows from them. There's, I don't want to get too sort of esoteric and, you know, speak about a sort of like, you know, radiating a sort of energy, but there is certainly a spiritual energy that radiates from people, um, both good and bad, uh, depending on the, the condition of their heart. So there are two ways that we can deal with thoughts, because of course we will have thoughts, um, not only of judgment, but thoughts of leading, um, that are attempting to lead us into all kinds of sins. And um, generally the, in the sort of the tradition of the saints, again, um, they speak about two ways of dealing with thoughts. The first one is to simply ignore the thoughts. That is the preferred method. Elder Paisu says, live simply and without thinking too much, like a child with his father. Faith without too much thinking works wonders. The logical mind hinders the grace of God and miracles. Practice patience without judging with the logical mind. Right. So not engaging with every thought, um, which leads to a sort of complication and uh, of course, that will also give the thoughts uh, more power to discourse and to uh, take root within ourselves. So the preferred way of dealing with any thoughts, especially when we discern them to not be godly thoughts, is to simply just not engage them, to ignore them. The second um, is to um, engage the thought by replacing it with another thought. Right? So um, again, Someone asked one of the elders, what should I do? Because all sorts of evil thoughts are coming to my mind. And the father said, stop the wind. But the brother asked, how can I stop the wind? I cannot stop the wind. Then the father answered, as you cannot stop the wind, so you simply cannot stop bad thoughts to come. But there's something else we can do with a good thought. We can remove the evil thought. So we replace the thought with a good thought um, or perhaps with a prayer like the Jesus prayer or a verse from the Psalms, as was very characteristic of the Desert Fathers, um, uh, with a, any other verse from the Scriptures, uh, with a good thought about the person that we're, you know, um, inclined to judge. Um, you know, anything that can replace the, the thought with something that can um, be sort of uh, a good disposition within ourselves. And this leads us sort of to this last point, which is um, the single eye that is spoken of in the scriptures. The Lord says, therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. And um, some translations it says good, but um, perhaps the more accurate translation is um, when your eye is single, then your whole body is full of light. And uh, that's the actual uh, translation that you find in some of the older translations, like the King James Version. Um, so what does it mean to have a single eye, a single vision? 
here the word single means um, a sort of singleness of, of devotion, a singleness of attention, a singleness of the heart, uh, meaning that all our attention, all our vision, all our desires, all our affections are on the Lord. And when we're not divided in our vision and devotion and attention and that our desires, um, then we can say that our, our vision is single and therefore we become all light. Um, so like the Psalm says, Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Right? So there's, uh, again, in, in the Psalms, especially and uh, in the experience of the Desert Fathers, this work, which is, you know, how to seek the face of God always, how to keep one's attention only on the Lord and not to be um, rerouted to uh, other um, things that grab our attention. So the problem with double vision is that, in a sense, we're not looking at um, one thing, but we're seeing two. And, and this is the, the ultimate problem with, um, with this, uh, when not living according to this verse of having the single eye. Um, sort of going back to where we started, um, in the passage that I read from Luke chapter 6, the parallel passage to Matthew 7, there is this, um, and it's mentioned in Matthew 7 as well, this idea of um, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you, right? The same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Um, and there's this really beautiful reflection by um, this wonderful contemporary um, author who's written a, a, a series of commentaries on the Gospel of St. Matthew. Um, his last name is Leiva Maricakis. Uh, I think his first name is Erasmus, Leiva Maricakis. And he has a, a four-part, uh, four-volume um commentary in the gospel of St. Matthew called the fire of mercy. And it's very sort of meditative way of reading the, the gospel. It's not a, a sort of a traditional, um, uh, you know, um, like verse by verse explanation in terms of just exegesis, but it's more of like how somebody might pray through the gospels. But in any sense, he, he says, He's, he, he meditates on this last part, for with the same measure that you use it, will be measured back to you. And he says, a beggar comes to my door asking for water to quench his thirst. I don't turn him away, but I also don't consider him worthy of touching his lips to more than the smallest tin cup in my house. I give him the cup and tell him to keep it. In reality, I don't want to waste my time with such company. A lifetime passes and I find myself in the presence of Christ, the King and the Judge. I anxiously await my reward. I have revered God, kept his commandments, observed the Lenten fast, and celebrated the church feasts. The king hands me back my tin cup, which I had long forgotten about and certainly did not expect to see again in this eschatological setting. Seeing the look of dismay on my face and with an infinite kindness in his voice that almost had the tone of a beggar in it, Christ says to me, I'm sorry, my friend, even I, the king, have no other cup to give to you. 
And glory be to God forever. Amen.